KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. CAL FIRE has sent about 600 firefighters to battle the LNU complex of wildfires burning near Vacaville in Solano County, as well as parts of Napa and Sonoma counties. The complex was started by a series of lightning strikes in the area. At least five people are reported dead in the fire, including a helicopter pilot who was killed in a crash on Wednesday fighting the fires. CAL FIRE Chief Daniel Berlant said Thursday's milder weather is helping in the fight. The lightning uh, storm has passed. The temperatures uh, the next couple days are going to go down slightly, but that may only last for a couple days. And going into the weekend, we will expect to see temperatures go back up. CAL FIRE says the fires have scorched 215,000 acres so far and are 0% contained as of 8 p.m. Thursday. Officials say more than 100 structures have been destroyed and 70 damaged. Elsewhere, the CZU August fire in Santa Cruz and San Mateo counties have forced the evacuation of UC Santa Cruz. It's burned 48,000 acres and is 0% contained. Across the mountains from Santa Cruz, the CSU Lightning Complex in Santa Clara and Alameda counties is 0% contained and has burned over 150,000 acres. In San Diego, a wildfire broke out on Thursday near the San Diego Riverside County line, according to City News Service. It was dubbed the Volcano Fire. It erupted sometime before 11.30 a.m., but by the afternoon, crews were able to stop the spread at around 50 acres burned. No structures were damaged. The cause of the Volcano Fire is under investigation. To keep up on fire information this weekend, check kpbs.org and fire.ca.gov. Ride-sharing in California will continue for now. Thursday, a judge extended a stay on an order that requires ride-share companies to classify their drivers as employees rather than independent contractors. The stay was issued after Lyft said it would shut down operations. Uber was expected to follow suit. Before the stay was issued, KPBS talked to Joe Sescolini, who drives for both rideshare companies. He was concerned for riders who rely on rideshare services. How am I getting to work? How am I getting to my doctor's appointment? How am I getting to the airport? I have to call, I have to figure a new system out. The stay will last until at least October 13th, when the rideshare companies will be back in court. Just a couple of weeks after that, on November 3rd, voters will decide on Prop 22. If approved, it would allow the companies to continue classifying their drivers as independent contractors. Otherwise, the ridesharing services will have to treat their drivers as employees, offering benefits and overtime. After two weeks of decline, the unemployment rate in San Diego has shot up to 14.2%, impacting over 200,000 San Diegans. Ray Major is chief economist at the San Diego Association of Governments. He says jobs just aren't becoming available fast enough to keep up with the demand. The ability to move people uh, into jobs will require uh, training programs and retraining. The hardest-hit neighborhood is San Diego's Logan Heights, where unemployment stands at 18.9%. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, August 21st. 
You're listening to San Diego News Matters from KPBS News. Stay with me for more of the local news you need to start your day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Schools across San Diego County are preparing to reopen campuses once they get the green light from the state. But some schools are erring on the side of caution. KPBS education reporter Joe Hong has our story. Local schools could reopen if San Diego County stays off the state's monitoring list for high rates of COVID cases for 14 days. But even if the county meets the state's criteria, the Francis Parker School, a private school in San Diego, plans to only partially reopen its classrooms. Kevin Yaley is Francis Parker's head of school. He said the school plans to offer only hybrid and online instruction for the entire academic year. The reason why we would not try to return back to normal is because we're still in the middle of a pandemic and we still have a responsibility to do everything we can. Francis Parker is one of 27 schools teaching elementary grades that received a waiver from the county to allow in-person teaching. If the county ends up back on the state's monitoring list, the school plans to welcome only its elementary age students back to campus for hybrid instruction. That was KPBS education reporter Joe Hong. A state bill aiming to give more power to restaurants over delivery services is nearing the governor's desk. This is because the pandemic has brought the issue of who gets to deliver a restaurant's food front and center. KPBS's Matt Hoffman reports. Many people stuck at home because of coronavirus have probably had food delivered to their door, not by actual restaurants themselves, but by companies like DoorDash or Postmates. But a bill called the Fair Food Delivery Act would protect restaurants from what some are calling food delivery exploitation. Jeff Rossman owns Terra American Bistro in San Diego. He says the delivery service Postmates had listed his restaurant on their app without his permission. So this bill is really allowing um, allowing us to recapture the customer and say, hey, you know, we we're behind our food. It's our menu that we put on your application. It's not just you picking something that we don't think is going to travel well. Today, Rossman uses delivery services at his eatery. The Fair Food Delivery Act would mandate food delivery services have an agreement with restaurants in order to work with them. That was KPBS's Matt Hoffman. President Trump on Thursday threatened to withhold federal aid to help with California's wildfires, saying he had warned the state it needed to, quote, clean its leaves, debris, and fallen trees. Cap Radio's PolitiFact reporter Chris Nichols has more. 
The president made these claims during a campaign event in Pennsylvania. They're a close copy of his oversimplified statements in 2018. That's when he said poor forest management was to blame for California's deadliest fire in history, the Camp Fire in Butte County. Here's what he said on Thursday. They have massive fires again in California. Maybe we're just going to have to make them pay for it because they don't listen to us. We say you got to get rid of the leaves, you got to get rid of the debris, you got to get rid of the fallen trees. Keith Gillis is chairman of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. He called Trump's statement simplistic and misleading. He says the state's extreme heat, the siege of lightning strikes, and low humidity all combine to cause the fires. Dense material on forest floors can make fires worse, but that's not what's driving them. The problem is not simply one of accumulation of some organic material on the floor of the forest. Two years ago, we rated Trump's claim as false. Today, his words are equally wrong. And staying with Chris here for a minute, President Donald Trump also weighed in recently about the rolling blackouts last weekend. He tweeted without evidence that Democrats intentionally implemented the outages. Cap Radio's PolitiFact reporter Chris Nichols also has this fact check. The state's power grid is managed by the California Independent System Operator. Late last week, it called on utilities across the state to initiate temporary blackouts because energy demand during the heat wave had outstripped supply. Officials at the system operator rejected Trump's claim that politics had anything to do with the blackouts. Severin Bornstein sits on the group's board of governors, which is appointed by Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. But he says it was a power grid manager, not any political appointee, that made the final call. There is no connection at all between the people who made the decision and anyone who has any political position in the electricity system. As demand outpaced supply last week, he said operators wanted to prevent the entire power grid from collapsing and weren't thinking about partisanship. Trump provided no evidence to support his statement. In the end, we rated it false. That was Cap Radio's Chris Nichols again. Full versions of all of the fact checks are at politifact.com slash California. This week, we're reporting on the startling number of elder care homes in places across California at heightened risk for wildfire. A KQED investigation found this is more than one-third of all of these facilities in the state. When elder care homes aren't ready for a disaster, local first responders get the call for help. But they're already overburdened, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. Here with the next story in our series, Older and Overlooked, are KQED science reporters Daniel Venton and Molly Peterson. It was a windy day in August, two years ago. A CHP officer had died that morning near a freeway in Fairfield. Lisa Romero went to see the makeshift memorial. On a hill behind it, she noticed a ribbon of orange flame. Romero knew older people lived over that way, with nothing between them and the fire. She went to offer help. I saw a man. He looked a little panicked and he was outside. The man worked at Loving Place, a small assisted living facility on Hancock Drive. And he told me, he said, I have a lot of residents inside. I only, you know, I have my car. I'm going to have to get them in. Some of them are not ambulatory. Romero is a nurse. She knew what that meant. So she went inside the care home to help bring people out. 
then we started to gather their belongings. And then I remember one lady wanted to call a family member, so I helped her call a family member. The fire kept coming closer. Romero says eventually she flagged down police and asked them to call 911. And everybody worked together. The police, the Good Samaritan, the person that was running the home. I believe we sent two ambulances, right? Jimmy Pearson is the president of Medic Ambulance. And then they needed four when we got there, but it was too late. Pearson's crews, Romero and others, got the four residents out to safe shelter. And that fire came right up to across the street from that house and easily could have burnt that house down. In the end, Romero was there for hours. So was another volunteer. So were the police. It was exhausting. Feeling the heat, it was unbearable. Like you could barely even open your eyes. It was so strong, and I've never been that close to a fire. After a complaint about that evacuation, state inspectors verified that Loving Place had a plan. But they concluded that the staffer on duty wasn't adequately trained and wasn't able to follow the plan when the emergency came. KQED's analysis found that Loving Place is one of more than 150 care facilities at heightened risk for wildfire in Solano County. This year, with the coronavirus still spreading, Pearson says places like that should be prepared. If you're talking about a second surge or second wave, and then you throw in a massive fire, which is going to happen, you're living in fire world and, you know, pandemic world. The pandemic has reached skilled nursing facilities in fire-prone areas from the Sierra foothills to the suburban fringe. More than half of those facilities have reported coronavirus outbreaks. One way to protect older and disabled people in care homes is to demand more scrutiny for their emergency plans. Kathy Heyer, a gerontologist from the University of South Florida, says climate-driven storms have forced Florida to do just that. There's a real effort to make sure that that communication occurs so that people can talk to each other during a local emergency. Ask for help, ask for supplies, tell them that they need to evacuate or whatever needs to happen. And for assisted living in particular, Hire's co-researcher, Lindsay Peterson, points out that states bear primary responsibility. There is no federal mechanism to regulate assisted living. If it's going to happen, it will only happen on the state or local level. And Kathy Heyer says Florida law requires long-term care homes to get approval for disaster plans from emergency officials and regulators to check up on them. And if they don't find it, they fine either the assisted living or the nursing home for not having that plan. But in California, we don't do that. When Loving Place got in trouble for failing to carry out an emergency plan or train its staff, regulators couldn't even issue fines for those deficiencies. No law requires the state Office of Emergency Services or county emergency managers to look at the plans care homes make for wildfires or any other threats. My colleague Danielle Venton has been looking into how California responds to disasters. She picks up the story. Cal OES's Vance Taylor says evacuations are always risky for disabled and older people. During the pandemic, it's especially important for facilities to have watertight plans. We have to have it in our minds that grouping people together and shoving them off in a hurry to one location might present an equal, if not greater, life-threatening risk. Taylor's job is to make sure that emergency response plans include people who might otherwise be overlooked. Because of the pandemic, he says, Cal OES now recommends more spacing among evacuees at shelters and even renting trailers and hotel rooms to keep people separate. But he can only offer guidance, not rules, about planning for evacuations. We set out a blueprint. But state policy is that locals are responsible, the county officials. To do what it is they believe is in the best interest of the individuals. 
in that community. Okay, what's the money look like for these things? Christopher Godley is the emergency manager for Sonoma County. He says the state expects more from disaster response than ever before. And so does the public. 20 years ago, if you sounded an air horn and you put a pillow on a cot in the gym, you were covered. That was the entire scope of your service set. In recent years, state officials have spoken more about emergency preparedness for vulnerable populations. KQED has found that 77% of Sonoma County care homes are in areas at heightened risk for fire. And when that wildfire breaks out and their plans are inadequate, the county has to divert from its other work mid-disaster to step in. But Godly doesn't have the authority to require better planning. So our relationship is one of certainly encouraging these facilities to step into that role, that responsibility more fully, develop realistic emergency plans, not just hypotheticals that sit in a binder on the nurse's station. Godley says the county's role is to warn vulnerable people when they need to get out of the way. Sonoma was criticized for inadequate warnings during the 2017 wildfires. Last year, the county began placing thousands of weather radios in schools and care homes where they can broadcast warnings and alerts. Some light up to warn the hard of hearing. Others use attachments to shake the bed of a sleeping person. Alerts also go out through text messages, emails, wireless emergency alerts, and high-low sirens that signal evacuations. And Godley says in pandemic times, work like this and extra staff time is costing more money. How much more? As a guess? 40%. Godley is now trying to get 10 shelters ready for any disaster to allow for distancing, where usually he would just need one. Okay, that's 10 times the amount of work and logistics, staffing levels and training for staffing. So it's a significant cost. It's not just buying two bottles of hand sanitizer and calling it good. And he worries that, despite his warnings and preparations, a 911 call to county services is still the backup plan for underprepared facilities. Technology is great, but it does not wheel a bed out of a home into an appropriate ambulance. What's needed, he says, is a long-term shift. Californians and their leaders need to plan for disasters as a way of life, not a last-minute scramble. Even if right now, and partly because of the pandemic, most local governments don't have the authority or funds to do that. That was science reporters Daniel Venton and Molly Peterson from our partners at KQED. KQED's data journalist Lisa Pickoff-White also reported on this story. On Monday, we'll have the final part on how to protect elders who live independently when it comes to an emergency. Coming up on San Diego News Matters, Derby United opened its two-ring facility in March and closed weeks later because of COVID-19. Now, it's had to pivot. I'm not gonna lie, it's been really hard. We built this place to have big roller derby programs. It works on volume. KPBS's Beth Accomando skated with the folks at Derby United. She has the latest on how the beat-em-up skate sport battles on. That's up next, after this. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, 
healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Filmmaker Barbara Koppel won Oscars for intimate documentaries about striking workers with Harlan County, USA and American Dream. Now she looks to a story that has a more global scope with Desert One. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has this review of the documentary opening virtually at the Coronado Film Festival and Angelica Film Center today. Desert One looks to the secret mission to free the 52 men of the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. The press materials note that it was called the most audacious, difficult, complicated rescue mission ever attempted. And spoiler alert for those who don't know history, it also failed. But that doesn't stop filmmaker Barbara Koppel from documenting the mission in engrossing detail. She interviews Jimmy Carter, special ops members, hostages, and Iranian captors. She even finds an Iranian man who witnessed the mission as a boy on a bus in the desert. She also uncovers amazing archival material. They have passed the point of no return, and they're only within 30 minutes out from the landing point. Although this is considered one of Carter's epic failures, what's refreshing is to see a president who's guided more by humanity than political opportunity, and who readily accepted all responsibility for what happened. It was my decision to attempt the rescue operation. It was my decision to cancel it. The responsibility is fully my own. Desert One is a compellingly told, surprisingly intimate, and meticulously researched documentary. But I wish it also looked for deeper insights. That was KPBS's Beth Accomando. And sticking with Beth's work here for a bit, in March, Derby United opened its outdoor two-rink facility for roller derby bouts. But within just two weeks, the coronavirus pandemic happened and it was forced to close. Since then, Derby United had to get creative and find a way to reopen. KPBS's Beth Accomando went to the outdoor rink in Encanto for a skate lesson, and there she met up with Nilly Goldfarb. Actually, Goldfarb is better known for her derby name, Isabel Ringer. She's the owner and general manager of Derby United. Here's that interview. So Isabel, last time I spoke to you, you were just about to have the grand opening of Derby United, and that was back in March. So what's been happening here? We did have our grand opening, and it was amazing. Ribbon cutting, our council member was here, folks from the planning office were here. We had a huge celebration. Hundreds of folks came out for a roller derby game. And a week later, we closed for the pandemic. And we stayed closed for a number of months. Once outdoor recreation was able to open, we started taking a good look at what we do out here and what we could do out here with the space and the resources we have. And that's what led to our reopen and a heavy focus on recreational roller skating. Now, originally this was designed for you to have roller derby bouts. This facility was specialty designed, two roller derby tracks. We were out here training every night, games almost every weekend. Um, but one of our two roller derby tracks is a super smooth concrete pad that's just perfect for any kind of roller skating. So why let it go to waste? We can't play contact sports. We do some fitness training for roller derby, but for the most part, 
it's a team sport, we like to play together. So instead, we started making a focus on what kind of recreational offerings could we put out there that would engage the community and our skaters and use the beautiful concrete pad that we have. So what kind of classes or lessons can people take here now? We have a wide range of offering from really little kid classes we call little rollers to adults who are opening their very first pair of skates and need to learn to roller skate or more experienced folks who want to learn things like jam and freestyle and dance that can come out and really hone their skills and feel good on their skates. Now this was a facility that you put together. It took a lot of work so what is it like trying to pivot during this pandemic? I'm not gonna lie, it's been really hard. We built this place to have big roller derby programs. It works on volume. And here we are saying, okay, we're gonna have 12 people per class in a limited time slot with online reservation. And so we see so many less people per day. We're able to host no events. And so, it's just a different situation. It's taken a lot of work, um, both with a new safety plan in place and a new financial plan in place to be able to get to the other side of this. We are a tiny business uh, and we just don't have the resources to be able to not be in business for you know, a year or longer. Part of what Derby United is about is this sense of kind of empowerment for young girls especially and for women and how is that carrying over into kind of this skate lesson and and you know more recreational skating just like with derby we hope that when people come to this property they're able to escape whatever's going on in the outside world and just spend some time focusing on themselves on roller skates it's good for their physical health their mental health, their emotional health. So we hope that when you come here, you get a break from that outside world and that when you leave here, you feel ready to take on whatever comes next. We wanna be the best part of anybody's day. And what kind of practices do you have in place to make sure that people stay safe with the pandemic going? Absolutely. So we put a number of safety protocols in place. We are extremely fortunate to have an outdoor facility, so we are open air to start with. We do still require masks for everyone on the property. All of our activities are taking place six feet or more apart. We limit our class numbers, so even though we have 9,000 square feet of concrete pad, we still only have about 12 people per class, so that there's plenty of room for your own space and that you can feel like you're in a safe place. Even when you need to get a sip of water, we have a safety protocol in place for you to leave the rink area, take your mask off, have your own ventilation and water break, and then put it back on and go back out there. I am going to partake in your class, and you were telling me that you had to search for an uh, instructor for these classes. So who did you find? When we did this pivot to recreational skating, we really wanted to get folks inside that community coming out to instruct, not just our folks from Derby. And so we found people from throughout the spectrum of roller skating. Today's instructor, Kara Lee, is a figure skate coach by trade. She's been in ice forever and spent some time in roller, and she got really into roller skating during the pandemic. And a friend said, you know, this woman's fantastic, why don't you talk to her? And we brought her out here and she was such a great fit for what 
we're doing. She teaches twice a week, teaches learn and return to skate. So either folks that are opening skates for the first time, or maybe it's been a few decades <laughs> and they're returning to skate. And she just does fantastic with these folks and just gets them rolling. So people should not be afraid to come out here and give this a try if they either haven't been on skates or it's been like, you know, like you said, decades. Absolutely no skating experience is needed. We have hundreds of pairs of roller skates, so even if you can't get your hands on a pair of roller skates right now, we have some that you can borrow with any class or session that you come here. Please bring your own protective gear. For beginners, I especially recommend at least wrist and knee pad, and we'll teach you everything from there. And how has it been going now that you've opened up for uh, skate lessons? When we started this reopen, we started really slowly. We wanted to make sure that we felt comfortable with the safety level, with the courses we were offering, the price point, all of it. And for a few weeks, we tinkered with that. And once we set a schedule we felt really happy with, we just spread the word and we've just seen classes selling out, which has been fantastic. So we're seeing folks coming to these courses, getting a lot out of it, returning, coming back for open sessions. It's been really great. And you said there's been a kind of a run on skates during the pandemic? There's been a massive revival of roller skating right now. So our good friends at Sin City Skates, who run the specialty, one of the specialty roller skate shops in town, they just fly off the shelves. They get a truckload in and a truckload blows out the door. You can't get your hands on roller skates. People are even scalping them on the internet. And how is this plan working in terms of keeping the business going because it's obviously not the same kind of flow of people coming in. So are you going to be able to survive through this? <laughs> we are extremely resilient. We will survive through this no matter what. However, this still doesn't touch having hundreds of people for events every weekend. So we have these offerings and that helps, but it also takes a lot of creative financial planning, a landlord who's willing to be flexible, taking on more debt, a lot of different programs that we're applying to, and we're gonna have to piece that whole thing together to make it to the other side of this. But we will, we'll be here. All right, well, I wanna thank you very much. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to see you roller skate. <laughs> That was Nilly Goldfarb, also known as Isabel Ringer, who's the owner and general manager of Derby United, speaking with KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando. San Diego News Matters is a daily morning news podcast powered by all of the reporters, editors, and producers in the KPBS newsroom. And just a reminder, we're still looking to hear from our audience in regards to the looming eviction crisis. Two state bills are still pending to thwart said crisis, but we want to hear from you if this is affecting you or your family. Call 619-452-0228 and leave a voice message with your full name and tell us about your experience. And as always, you can find us on Twitter at KPBS News or to find our podcast producer, Kinsey Moreland, she's at Kinsey. You can find more KPBS podcasts like Only Here or Cinema Junkie on our website at kpbs.org slash podcasts or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.